Well, we're really excited this morning. Our, our pastors were on a retreat together over the weekend, so we needed a little help. And uh, when it comes to uh, particularly the Old Testament, we uh, love uh, having, and many of you have benefited from our friend Corey Bacher, who's a member here for about 10 years now. And uh, Corey often teaches classes here on Monday nights. Some of you have had him when you were students at Worthington Christian. Many of you have benefited from his uh, passion for God's Word, and we're happy to have Corey here this morning to take us in our next journey in Second Kings. So how about a great Linworth welcome for Corey. Good morning. Are you ready to continue this strange and exciting saga of kings? All right. Now, warning, as you mentioned, I'm a high school teacher, so my messages are always followed by quizzes and tests. So take notes, and at the end of this, the ushers are going to pass out a quiz for you to all take. So um, we are in 2 Kings chapters 3 and 4, and for those who are using a pew Bible, that's page 308, um, those little black Bibles under your seats, you got to pull them out of the wire frame. They're difficult sometimes, especially getting it back in if somebody's sitting in front of you. So, um, so 308 in the Pew Bibles, 2 Kings 3 through 4. And there are two major points that I'm going to be making in the message today. And the first one is Yahweh is sovereign over governments despite the power that they wield. We will see that in chapter 3. And then the second point that I'm making is Yahweh is sovereign over the people whom governments do not notice. And we will see that in chapter four. So now with this name Yahweh, um, I use this a lot. Nick has mentioned this in the past, but the name of God revealed in the Bible is Yahweh. And you can call him God or Lord or Yahweh. God's not like up there saying, use my name. Um, but he has revealed to us in Exodus chapter um, three with Moses, that his name is Yahweh. And in your Bibles, the translators have chose to reveal this through the all capital L-O-R-D. So whenever you see all capital letters, L-O-R-D, it's Yahweh. If you just see a capital L and lowercase O-R-D, that's just like Lord, Master, Sir. Um, I use Yahweh all the time um, because I teach high school kids and they deal with lots of different religions in the world. Lots of gods show up in the Bible. And I just like using the name Yahweh because it makes it clear what God we're talking about in this polytheistic world we live in and the polytheistic world of the Bible of many gods. And it just reveals that. So, um, so don't be confused. Um, this is Lord, Master, God, Lord, whatever we use typically speaking. So with that, let's open in prayer. Yahweh, we just um, we come to you today and we just praise you that you are a God that loves us so much that you chose to reveal yourself to us in your word. Um, that like literally any other religion and any other God in the entire world, you chose to actually give us a word, a message, a scripture that reveals to us who you are in your character and your actions and your words and how we can know you. And we thank you that you've given us Jesus so that we can actually come into relationship with you. And I now just pray that you speak through me and to these, um, my fellow brothers and sisters, through the Holy Spirit that you've also given us, I pray that you would be revealed in a new and deeper way to us, and that you would um, go with us into the week and apply everything that we've learned and transform us into your image. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are in chapter 3 of 2 Kings, 
And we are dealing with two major kings here that we're going to see in this passage. And so in verse 1, it says, In the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, Jehoram, son of Ahab, became king over Israel and Samaria. He reigned for 12 years. Okay, now I know many of us, when we go kings, we're like, the kings are like, okay, these are just a lot of strange names. So I gave you a little diagram. Um, the blue is the family of Ahab. For those who are here back in 1 Kings or remember 1 Kings, Ahab was one of the last major despicable kings. He was married to a woman by the name of Jezebel who just ruined Israel and wore the pants in the family. And um, he has his family. And the red is David's line. Um, so the kingdom is split into two sections at this time. It's the north is Israel, 10 tribes, and the south is Judah, one tribe. The blue is the north and the red is the south. Ahab married a woman by the name of Jezebel. He had two major sons that are talked about in the Bible. The first one is Ahaziah, who Chris read about and described him last week. He's the one that fell out of the window, broke his back, went to Baal instead of Yahweh, and Yahweh judged and condemned him, and he died. So then he was succeeded by his brother, Jehoram, and that's who we're reading about today. So this is a son of Ahab, the brother of Ahaziah, who went to Baal and is continuing this paganism in the nation. And then the other king we're learning about is Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat is actually a godly king. He's not perfect, but he's godly. And one of the, he's a descendant of David. One of the imperfect things that he did is he made an, a treaty with Ahab. Now, there's nothing wrong with an Israelite making a treaty with an Israelite. That's not forbidden in the Bible. But Jehoshaphat's a godly man who made a treaty with a man who worshiped Baal and horrible pagan gods. And he yoked himself with that through marriage, and that was not good. And he did this by Ahab marrying his daughter, Athaliah, to Jehoshaphat's son, Jehoram. Yes, we like to see multiple names and make it more confusing. <laughs> now, if you're using the NIV, your NIV says Jerome here, because they're like, that's just too confusing. We're going to change the name. But most other translations are like, no, his name's Jehoram, so we'll go that route. So the ESV says Jehoram. So they're yoked together in this treaty. That means when Ahab goes to war, or Ahaziah, or Jehoram in this story, Jehoshaphat has to go with them. Now, he doesn't technically have to, but he's going to have to do a lot of politics to get out of it because they made a treaty. So that's important to understand as we go into this story. So we're going to learn a little bit more about Jehoram in verse 3. It's verse 2. He did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh, though not like his father um, Ahab and his mother Jezebel, who he put away before he put away the pillar of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sin of Jeroboam, son of Bat, which he made Israel's sin. He did not depart from it. So basically, Ahab built an altar and a god to Baal, or an idol to Baal. And then there was this king way before them, the first king of Israel after it split named Jeroboam. And he created a brand new religion that he literally just made up. Um, and then he used the images of the golden calf that Israel erected back in the out of coming out of Egypt to represent that new religion. And so the Bible is now saying, Jehoram was an evil man. He didn't follow God, but he wasn't as bad as his really jacked up evil father by worshiping Baal, but he still was bad because he worshiped the other religion and the golden calf. Basically, his way of saying is he didn't go with the religion of the locals. He went with the religion of the power and the elite. 
And so he basically is promoting this political, made-up government religion in order to oppress the people. And this is the kind of guy that he is. So that's the introduction to Jehoram. Does that make sense? Following? Okay. So verse 4. Now Mesa, king of Moab, was a sheep breeder, and he had to deliver to the king of Israel a hundred thousand lambs and the wool of a hundred thousand rams. But when Ahab died, the really powerful king, the father, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So the king of Jehoram marched out of Samaria at that time and mustered all of Israel. Okay, so on the map you can see that the purple, the, the big blob, the amoeba of purple in the middle of the map is Israel in the north. They are the, the 10 tribes of the north. And their fellow tribe, Judah, the green at the bottom, is the southern kingdom. So Jehoram is ruling the purple in the north, and Jehoshaphat is ruling the green in the south. And so during the time of Ahab, he was ruling over Moab and Edom. Moab and Edom are in the bottom right hand, the brown and the rusty purple collar. Um, so they're ruling this, and they're ruling over them. And when Ahab dies, Moab says, oh, this is a good opportunity to rebel and get out from under the yoke of Israel and become our own nation again in our own empire. And so they decide to rebel, and they decide to rebel by saying, we're not paying the taxes anymore. Okay? And so that's your first sign that you're rebelling when you're like, I'm not paying taxes. So they decide to rebel, and Jehoram says, I don't like that. I'm just as much of a man as my father. I'm going to go out and dominate him and take him back under our yoke. Now, Edom is in the south, and they're going to join them. We're going to read that. Now, what you need to understand about Moab and Edom is Moab is the descent of Lot, the nephew of Abraham. And Edom is the descent of Esau, the brother of Jacob, who was the father of all these nations. And for those who don't know Abraham and Jacob, they're the people who started the nation of Israel, and God chose. So technically, Moab and Edom are part of the Abrahamic covenant of God blessing them, but they're not the chosen people that God is going to use to bring the Messiah to redeem the world. And so there's a connection to God that they have forgotten, just like Israel is forgetting their connection to God. And so they, Jehoram says, I'm going to stop this rebellion, and I'm going to take them back. And the only way they can do that is, obviously, the only way you can flex your power is through war. That's the way that these kings think. And so they're going to go to war. So verse 6, So King Jehoram marched out of Samaria, which is the capital of the north, at the time, and mustered all of Israel. He went and sent word to Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah in the south, and the king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to battle against Moab? And he said, I will go, and I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. Then he said, by which way shall we march? Jehoram answered, by the way of the wilderness of Edom. Okay? So he goes to Jehoram, he says, look, will you go with me into battle to take Moab back? And the unspoken word is, we have a treaty. We have an alliance. You're kind of bound to help me but we're doing this in a polite way. And Jehoshaphat says, yes, like, your horses are my horses, your land is my land, everything is because we're in this treaty together, okay? Now, what you need to understand right now, nobody has consulted God. 
And this is one of the messages that the Bible keeps showing over and over again in Judges. The biggest mistakes that humans constantly make in the Bible is that they don't go to God enough. And their first response is to go the way of the world and the culture. And if everybody in the culture thinks that solving problems is war, and everybody thinks that alliances and treaties is the answer, that's our knee-jerk reaction. Now, that's not ours. We're not thinking like, oh, I'm going to solve my problem at work by going to war and alliances and treaties. But we do think like, oh, I need the really good lawyer and the best lawyer or the best doctor or I'll never get my answers or I'll never get my problems fixed rather than immediately starting with prayer. And none of these things are bad. It's just nobody is going to God. And what you need to understand is the first point that this chapter is making is that Yahweh directs the nations in the way that he wants. And right now it looks like you have a bunch of powerful people who are not consulting God, doing things on their own to get more power without going to God. But what this story is going to show is that in the end, God is still in control. God is still in control. And I know oftentimes we feel like, especially in our nation right now, and I don't care where you are politically, we all feel like things are out of control. And there's a lot of really powerful people who are doing whatever they want, regardless of how it affects most people. And it really feels like everything is going to chaos and falling apart. It's the end of the world. But what God is going to show us in this chapter is, no, kings rise and kings fall whenever he wants. And he's going to direct them in the way that he wants. It will not always be comfortable, but he will direct them in the way that he wants. And that's what we're going to see. And so Jehoshaphat is falling into this. As a godly man, he's falling into this cultural trap of just doing it the way that the world wants to do it. And he's going to war with them based on the treaty and the alliance that he has. And meanwhile, as they ride down to fight Moab, they're going to make an alliance with Edom. Now, we don't have no idea. The Bible doesn't tell us why they're making an alliance with Edom, why Edom is joining them in this. Obviously, Edom sees it as a political game for themselves to crush Moab as well. And the enemy of my enemy is now my friend. Um, but that's not what's important in this story, is all the biography. What's important is what God is doing and how we respond. And so Edom is going to join them. So verse 9, So the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom, and when they had made a circuitous march seven days, there was no water for the army or for the animals that followed them. And then the king of Israel said, Alas, Yahweh has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. Now, they've been wandering around trying to find the Moabite army in order to crush them. And now they're in the middle of the desert because all of Moab and all of Edom is just desert. There's little wadi springs here and there and that kind of stuff, but it's mostly desert. And you would think that the king of Edom, who lives in the desert, would be well prepared for a journey and a battle in the desert, but they're not. But I think we can often think of that sometimes too. You would think our government would be prepared to handle certain problems, but then they're not, okay? And so you would think we would be prepared to handle certain problems when we go into certain ventures, and then we realize we're not. And the point that God is making it here is no matter how clever or how much you think you've got it all figured out, and that you can solve your problem on your own, and you've done this before, and you live in this country, in this culture, and you've done this. In the end, there's always things that are going to ruin it and make you realize how out of control you are and how unprepared that you truly are. And so by God making them wander around in the wilderness, we've seen that one before, he's showing them, you have all this power and all this army, and yet you still don't really know how to prepare for the future and handle all the problems that come. And this is the point that he's making. 
And then when all the problems hit, the king says, God's fault. He's the one that gathered us three kings together so that we would just be handed over to Moab and be destroyed by them and die in the wilderness. Everybody, our, well, our knee-jerk reaction is to do things on our own and not really trust God until all the problems happen, then we like to blame him. Um, the world tends to be atheistic until there's problems and then it's God's fault. Okay, we're gonna, we're gonna, there is no God. He can't take care of us. And then there's suffering evil in the world. We're like, why didn't God do anything about that? Okay? And so we're very quickly to not trust God. But then when problems happen, we blame him for everything happening. His sovereignty only counts when we want to blame him. And we give things over. And that's something we need to protect ourselves from and really think about. Either God is sovereign all the time or don't even invoke his sovereignty. Um, And that's the point that he's making here. And so he's blaming him. And like true people, we're always blaming him. We saw this from the very beginning. Adam sins, and he blames his wife, and his wife sins, and she blames a serpent, and the serpent turns around, and nobody's there. And so <laughs> we, we typically pass the blame to other people. So now Jehoshaphat, at this time, the king of Israel in the north, who's a pagan, doesn't follow Yahweh, doesn't care about Yahweh, but when he has a problem he immediately blames Yahweh's sovereignty for making all this happen. But Jehoshaphat, he might have made a mistake, and he might be late to the game, but his first response is, Jehoshaphat said, verse 11, is there no prophet of Yahweh here through whom we may inquire of Yahweh? Sometimes we may be slow to go to God, but at least Jehoshaphat's finally going to God. And because he's going to God, God's going to bless that. God's going to bless that. And so he asked for a prophet. Now, this is the strange part of this story. Then the king of Israel's servants answered, there is Elisha, the son of Shaphat. He is here, who poured the water in the hands of Elijah. And Jehoshaphat said, the word of Yahweh is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. Now, here's the thing. This is the part of the story that's confusing. Where in the world did they find Elisha? They're in the middle of the desert. They're wandering around. If they were truly able, like, it's not like they went into town to get Elisha and then bring them back. They're starving. They're, they're, they're dying of thirst. They don't know where to go. And Elisha just happens to be there in the middle of the wilderness. Yeah, because that's the way that God works. Yahweh already saw all this happening. And Yahweh's already ready to take care of Jehoshaphat when he was finally ready to go to God. And a lot of times I think either we think, oh, God will never use me or God can't answer my prayer because I was so late coming to him. And yeah, there's going to be some consequences you're going to reap in waiting so long. But God is always ready for you to come to him. And he's always ready to start having everything in place to solve your problems and fix everything and guide you in the right direction. And so Elisha said to the king of Israel, what have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and to the prophets of your mother. Okay, so Elisha's response is, why are you coming to me? Why don't you go to Baal, or more specifically for them, the golden calves? You worship them, you've tossed me to the wayside, you've lived your life the way you wanted to, you have got yourself into this problem through your own actions and beliefs, and you've worshiped these gods, and now there's a problem, go to your gods. If they're really truly that great, then go to them for the answers. Why are you coming to me and consulting me? I'm not going to do it. 
This is what Yahweh is saying. Now, he's not technically saying, I'm not going to help you, but he is trying to help them think through what's happening. If you really, truly believed that God can't solve your problems and that you're willing to go into your entertainment or your sports or your career or whatever God you've made or whatever idol that you've used, and we pursue those things with our money and time consistently over and over again, and then when we have problems, then we start praying, God's like, why aren't you going to your entertainment and your sports and your lawyers and your career and all that kind of stuff to fix this problem? You had plenty of time for them and not for me, and now that you have a problem, and what God is trying to expose to you, deep down inside, you know these things will really not help you. You know these things will not fix your problems. These things will really not make you feel fulfilled and complete inside. And what God is trying to do is help him realize when it really comes down to fixing and solving problems and fulfilling your needs, ultimately in the end, you're going to God. Like there are no atheists in foxholes, okay? And what God's trying to help them understand is, but I don't want you just when everything's falling apart, I want you when everything is good too. I want you when everything is good because if you're with me when everything is good, then all of it becomes that much better, okay? All of it becomes that much better. And so he's trying to help them understand this. But as typical, the kings are dense, okay? And this is the same thing that he said to Ahaziah. Um, Chris pointed this out last week. Ahaziah went to Baal instead of Yahweh, and Elisha showed up and said, why didn't you go to Baal? Like, and then he judged him. Now, here's the difference. Sometimes God judges you, but sometimes he blesses you in his grace. And I don't know when and why he does those different things. He's God. And like a good parent, sometimes you know your kid needs a good grounding, and sometimes you, need, they, you know they need a hug and grace when they've messed up. And sometimes we just don't know, and we just pray to God, <laughs> okay? <laughs> but God is at this moment with Ahaziah previously saying, you need to be judged. But with, with um, Jehoram and Jehoshaphat, he says, but I'm going to show you grace. But either way, God is going to be known. God is going to be known. So... The king, once again, keeps blaming God. He says, no, it is Yahweh who called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. No, 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 no. You can't play that card with me, Elisha. God brought us here. God is going to destroy us. Now you have to fix it because God has done this to us. Jehoshaphat, as the believer, is late to the game, but at least he's realizing we need to go to God. Jehoram, who's stubborn and his own power and his own confidence and never taking responsibility for his actions, is continuing blaming everybody else. And the question is, which one are you going to be when that happens? Verse 14, And Elisha said, As Yahweh the host lives, before whom I stand, were it not that I have regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would neither look at you nor see you. But now bring me a musician. And when the musician played, the hand of Yahweh came upon him. And he looks straight at the king and says, if it were just you, God would not answer your prayer request. Because you have turned against him. And even now, when you're being humbled, you still are shaking your fist at God, blaming him for everything. But because of Jehoshaphat, who didn't trust me in the beginning, but now that he's being humbled, is coming to me and falling before my knees and seeking me out, for him I will answer this prayer request. Because who are those who can come into the presence of the Lord? Only the humble. 
only the humble. And even when we're late to the game, God still rewards the humble. And so he says, I will answer your prayer because of Jehoshaphat. And that's the important thing that you realize is that we're in a nation right now where governments are very powerful and very much control and corporations and we feel very lost. But what is it that's preserving this nation? The humble who get on their knees before God, okay? If you're turning to these things to save you, they will fail you. But Chronicles says, those who, humble, those who fall on their knees and repent before me and humble before me, I will heal your nation. I will heal your nation. And so God is looking to them and saying, you are not accepting the humbleness that I'm providing. And I won't help you. But because Jehoshaphat is falling on his knees and crying out to me, I'm going to heal you guys. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to provide for you. And this is a very important thing to understand. As God goes through the Bible here, he constantly makes this point. Now he says, bring a musician. Now this is the only time in the entire Bible that we see a musician actually showing up. And actually, like, that a prophet needs music to help him connect to God and do this thing. And we don't really, you can unpack this for a long time, but for whatever reason, maybe Elisha is so distressed dealing with these kings, he's so tired with them, he's, he's worn out, he's beginning to feel Elijah's pain of like nothing ever seems to change no matter how hard you try. And so he just needs to be soothed and calm to get in the right mood and the right spirit to talk to God. But that's what we're happy, having here. And so he, they begin to play. And so he plays for them. And then God speaks to Elisha in the midst of the music and says this, verse 16. And he said, thus says Yahweh, I will make this dry stream full of pools, for thus says Yahweh, you shall not see wind or rain, but the stream bed shall be filled with water so that you shall drink you and your livestock and your animals. This is a light thing in the sight of Yahweh. He will also give the Moabites into your hand, and you shall attack every fortified city and every choice city, and shall fell every good tree and stop up every spring of water and ruin every good piece of land with the stones. The next morning about this time, an offering sacrifice, behold, the water came from the direction of Edom till the country was full of water. So Elisha says, behold, you will see a miracle in the desert of Edom. Everywhere you look, you're going to see pools of water everywhere. And these pools of water are not only going to provide you for your thirst in the middle of the desert, like he did with Moses in the wilderness generation, but these pools of water are going to bring the defeat of Moab. I will give you victory. I will crush these nations for you so that you may know that I am God and you may turn to me. And that's the implication. Now, I know he doesn't say that here, but he says that over and over again in the Bible. God does these miracles for people who are not following him so that they may know who he is, so that they will come to him. And this is what he's doing. And so the very next morning, that's exactly what happened. There are pools of water everywhere. This, these dying of thirst soldiers are able to drink to their full. And then not only that, the Moabites show up. And the distance, the Moabites see these pools. But because the soil here is really red, like in Georgia, the pools actually look like puddles of blood. And so the Moabites see these and they think there's blood everywhere. These kings must, the Edomites, Israel in the north and Judah in the south must have turned on each other and slaughtered each other. Now that's not uncommon because kings betray each other all the time. 
And so they see this, and they immediately say, let's grab all the spoils of the leftover. Let's grab their swords and their food and everything left behind because they're all dead. And they rush into these three armies, thinking undefended, ready to grab everything, no swords in hand because they're sheathed, ready to grab stuff. And they find out there's fully armed nation there. And the nation, the Israelite just slaughters the Moabites and destroys them. And they're victorious, just like God said. And this is what you need to understand. God will direct the nations in the way that he wants. He uses their own arrogance of the Moabites and their own overconfidence to bring them down. And he uses the overconfidence of Jehoram in order to humble him so that he can do a miracle to show that he's truly in control. And what you need to realize is that even when you may look at the news, and the news is really good at making you feel like everything's falling apart and everything is chaos, and you are completely out of control. And they answer, yeah, you are. But what you need to do is the news is not going to show you the commentary of God. And it's not going to show you the way that God is directing our leaders and our CEOs. And he's using their own arrogance and pride in order to humble them so that some may come to him or that he may judge them and deal with them so that his people can be taken care of. It may not always be comfortable for us, But what God is trying to show you here, no matter how powerful they are, he's going to destroy them or he's going to humble them and bring them to him. There's this really great line from Bill and Ted's bogus adventure back in the (laughs) 80s. And death is a figure that goes around with them on all these journeys. Um, You may want to watch it. You may not want to watch it. It's dumb. Um, But the death is the grim reaper with a sickle. He's got this great little ditty. He says, you may be a king on high or a little street sweeper, but eventually everybody dances with the reaper, okay? And that's God's idea of saying kings will be brought up or they will brought down because God wills it, okay? Everybody will answer to God and they will either be judged or they will be humbled, but God will direct nations in the way that he wants. Now, there's this strange passage here where when Moab realizes that he only has 700 soldiers left, the Moabite king, and there's no chance of victory for him. He basically goes and takes his firstborn son, slaughters him and sacrifices him to his god, Kamosh. And then this divine anger lashes out against him. We see this in verse 27. Then he took his oldest son who was in the rain, who was going to reign after he died and offered him as a burnt offering, meaning burning him up completely on the wall and then puts him on the wall of the palace. And there came the great wrath against Israel and they withdrew from him and returned to their own land. Now, the Bible makes it very clear that the gods are real. I know we often think that the gods are not real. We just call them demons. And so in Deuteronomy 32, 16 through 17, Deuteronomy 32, 16 through 17, Psalm 106, verse 37, Psalm 106, verse 37, and 1 Corinthians 10, 20, 1 Corinthians 10, 20, these three passages, many passages in the Bible make this clear, but these three passages make it very clear when they specifically say, when you worship the idols and the gods and you sacrifice to the gods, you are sacrificing to the demons. There is a, the gods may not be real as in Baal and Zeus and Ra and all that, but the power behind them is real. And the God that you're devoting yourself to is a devotion to the demons. And so it's, in our atheistic culture, it's easy for us to think, oh yeah, God's powerful and there is a spiritual realm. And then when we see the spiritual realm acting, we're like, oh no, that can't happen. <laughs> and what God is showing you is that this king took his most important thing to him 
And he was so desperate for victory, he was willing to kill his own family. Some of us are so desperate to succeed in our jobs, we're willing to sacrifice our kids. And he sacrifices his son to this God to gain victory in battle, to have more political power. This is how evil he's begun. He's willing to sacrifice people for power. And the result is this demon rewards him by lashing out against Israel. And Israel sees it, they're so scared they run away. But that's not God's fault. God promised them victory, and he gave them victory. But when they had victory, the demonic world responded, and then the believers got scared and ran away. And you need to understand there's a very important thing here is there was no follow-through. They finally turned to God, and they finally cried out to him, and God gives them a miracle, and everything's getting easy again because God's giving them a miracle. But then when the world responds with a backlash to that, then the believers say, oh my gosh, I can't handle that. That's too much, and they run away again. And this is when God is again saying, I want you all the time. I want you all the time. If I can do this with these armies, then can I not defeat the spiritual realm too? If I have conquered the spiritual realm, death and the grave, and sin and the devil through the resurrection, then what backlash do you have to fear? It may not always be comfortable, but you have nothing to fear. Death has lost its sting. And this is where Israel fails again. And so what you need to understand, it doesn't matter how much out of control you think you will have, because you do, you have no control. It doesn't matter how chaotic things are. It doesn't matter how much of a backlash you're getting. It doesn't matter how unhopeful you feel like your future is. God will direct the nations in the way that he wants. And it'll always work out for his good. It'll always work out for your good too. Because he's a God who is sovereign over all the governments. And that's an important thing to notice. Chapter four. Now we switch gears. Now we switch to the next point, that Yahweh is sovereign over the people whom governments do not notice. We're gonna see people here that the government is ignoring and that nobody seems to be fixing their problems, but now he's paying attention to them. So chapter four, verse one. Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elijah, Elisha, your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servants fear Yahweh, but the creditors have come to take my two children to be their slaves. So her husband has died, and what she's telling Elisha is my husband died, but he loved God. He didn't die in some judgment of God because he didn't follow God and he was part of the pagan worship. He was a prophet that was a godly prophet. He, he loved and pursued God, but he's dead. And now that he's dead, I can't, there's, I, don't, I have a less, one less person to take care of my kids, less, one less person to work the fields, um, one less person to work a job, one less paycheck now, and I can't afford all this stuff, I can't take care of everything, and the creditors are going to come, and, and when we file bankruptcy, we just lose everything and have to start all over. Bankruptcy in the ancient world is slavery. And they're going to come and take my kids and me and put me in slave. Help me. And Elisha comes to her, because it's the point that God is making. God rewards the emptiness, back to the previous point. God rewards the emptiness of his people, okay? Your servant, my husband, is dead. And this is what Elisha said to her, verse two. What shall I do for you? Tell me, what have you in the house? And she said, your servant is nothing except a little jar of oil. 
Then he said, go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels, jars and containers, Tupperware, pampered chef, and not too few. And then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour all these vessels, pour into all these vessels. And when one is full, set it aside. So she went in from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons. And she poured and they brought the vessels to her. And the vessels were full, and she said to her son, Bring me another vessel. And he said to her, There is not another. Then the oil stopped flowing. So Elisha says, Take the little bit that you have and get all the containers from everybody that you can find, bring them home, and just start filling them all up. And we've seen this so many times in the Bible of God doing this. And it does exactly the way that it happens. So she's going to oil is expensive. It's one of the most expensive things in the ancient world. And so this all gets filled up. And then she goes to him, and she came to him and told the man of God, he said, go, sell the oil, pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on the rest. That oil was so much that it was able to pay all of her debts off and secure her future and her son's future, financially speaking. Because God rewards the emptiness of the people. She was completely empty with nothing for her future. And yet, because she went to God in faith, God multiplied her emptiness. Now, I know that mathematically doesn't work, but this is God, okay? There is so, I'm a poor boy. I work for a Christian school. I get paid hardly anything, and that's not to make you feel sorry for me. Because here's the thing. There's so many times, like after our second kid was born, I feel like all of our money disappeared with all those hospital bills. Um, we had very little. There, most of our life we've struggled. There are times our air conditioner has gone out and things are broken and we had no money to pay for it. And I can go on, I could spend like all day today going over the times in my testimony you heard that God anonymously provided for my seminary education for four years. There are times our AC is broken and all of a sudden somebody just sends us a check that covers the entire cost. Um, there are times that like somehow there's no way our bank account can actually pay for these bills sometimes. I don't even know how it happened. And, and there's benefits to being wealthy because you can be comfortable. But the disadvantage is you don't really see God show up all the time taking care of your emptiness. And I can go on and on and on of all the times that we have been struggling so much that, and yet God is always taking care of us. Our life, we're not rolling in the cash, God taking care of us. It has never been comfortable. It has never been easy. But in the end, I don't really lack trust in God anymore whether he will show up or not. I may not always be happy with his timing, but I don't ever wonder whether he will. And so God is taking care of her in her brokenness and her emptiness and her lack, and nobody's noticing her. Her coworkers are not noticing her. Her boss is not noticing her. Her government checks are not noticing her. Yet God is taking care of her. God is taking care of her. And God rewards our emptiness. The next story, verse 8. One day Elisha went on to Shunem, where a wealthy woman lived, who urged him to eat some food. So whenever he passed that way, he could turn in there to eat food. And she said to her husband, Behold now, I know that this is a holy man of God, who is continually passing our way. Let us make a small room on the roof with walls, and put thereon for him a bed, a table, and a chair, and a lamp, so that whenever he comes to us, he can go there. So this next story is that Yahweh rewards the hospitality. Go back just one slide. God rewards the hospitality of his people, okay? 
This is a very, very wealthy woman. She's politically powerful. She's politically wealthy. That makes sense. Um, She is connected, and she sees this prophet coming through all the time, and she says, look, I have so much, and he has so little. I want to create, build a room addition to my house just so he can stay there when he passes through. This is my offering to him and to God. And so he does. He stays there constantly, however many times he comes through. She is incredibly hospitable and generous to the people of God. But the one thing that she doesn't have is a kid. And no matter how wealthy you are, no matter how powerful you are, you have no value in that culture if you have no kids. Kids is what your social status is. Kids are who take care of you when you're old. Kids are your army and protection. Kids are your lawyers and civil rights. They don't have any of this stuff in the ancient world. So the bigger your family is, the greater civil rights you have, the better lawyers you have, the better doctors you have, all that kind of stuff. This is your community. And she has none of that. And no matter how much money and how much power she has, she doesn't have the thing that matters the most, a child. So Elisha says, what can I do to thank her? Now, this is actually kind of insulting to go to somebody's house and they provide you lots of food and you're like, hey, I need to pay you now. But this is what he does. And he says, how can I help you? And Gehazi, his servant, says, well, she has no kid. Now, notice she's not asking for this. Gehazi points it out. And Elisha goes to her and says, by this time next year, you will have a kid. And that next year, the kid is born. And God rewards her for her hospitality. Now, he's not making a promise to everybody that the thing that you want the most and the thing that you need the most, he'll just automatically give you if you have faith. But what he is saying is, I will provide for you if you have faith. I reward your faith. I reward your hospitality. And so this next year, but here's what's odd. One day when the boy is a toddler around in the fields and that kind of stuff, he's going around and one day his head starts hurting and he starts freaking out and then he dies. He must have had a brain tumor or some kind of thing. And so the very thing that she just got from God, she lost. Now, the, the, the widow of the previous story back in 1 Kings, her son died, and she blamed God. And God raised the boy from the dead. This widow, or she's not, this isn't a widow, this woman, her son dies, and she puts the son in the bedroom and immediately hunts down Elisha and says, you heal him. God gave me this gift. You heal him. Now, we can argue all day long if that's right or wrong (laughs) to demand that of God. But what we do see is that when it really comes down to it, she believes that God can do it. She believes that God has the ability to take care of her. And so God rewards her with a resurrection. And so Elijah walks back and forth and lays down the boy and gets back up and walks back and forth and lays down again. You're like, this is kind of odd. And it is. But the reason is, is because he doesn't have the power to raise the boy. He only has the power to seek out God for the resurrection. When Jesus comes along, he's not going to walk around and lay down and get back up and do rituals. He's going to speak and people are going to rise from the dead. And so what you're seeing here is God is working through Elisha. But when his son comes, his son is going to do it. And so this is a foreshadow of the Messiah, but this is also showing that she was hospitable to Elisha and God reward her. 
And even when bad things happen to her after she was rewarded, and it feels like, okay, God, you're a jerk. You now took it all away. She still does not waver in her faith. And she believes that God is the one who can still fix it. And he responds and he fixes it. Because God rewards the hospitality and the faith of his people. Now, there is this episode here, and this is setting you up for the future weeks, where he first sends Gehazi to do it, the servant. And Gehazi goes and does it, and he's like, I can't do this. This is not possible, and he gives up. And then Elisha has to come in and do it. And the point that this is making, not in this story, not for us now, but for the future, is that this is showing you that Gehazi has disqualified himself from being the successor to Elisha. Because later when we get to the story of Naaman or Naaman, the the Syrian general, we're going to see Gehazi really mess up and get greedy. And he's going to take things. And so we saw Elijah, and he was succeeded by Elisha, and he was given a test, Elisha, and he passed the test. And he showed his commitment and faith to God, and he was able to succeed Elijah. Now Gehazi's been given a test by Elisha, and Gehazi fails. And so that's important for you to understand what's coming in the next week with chapter 5, when Gehazi shows, not only does he show that he's no longer a prophet, but then he's going to reap the judgment of God later. And so we see that. Now, the next story is Yahweh rewards the cry of his people. Yahweh rewards the cry of his people. Verse 38. Elisha came again to Gilgal when there was a famine in the land, and the sons of the prophets, this is a prophetic guild of a bunch of prophets, and these prophets, some of them are good and some of them are bad, Um, and you've got to figure out whether they're a good prophet or not good prophet by the way they act and the way they go to God. And they were sitting before him, and he said to his servants, set on a large pot and boil the stew for the sons of the prophets. And one of them went out into the field and gathered herbs and found a wild vine and gathered from it a, um, a lap full of wild gourds and came and cut them into the pot of stew, not knowing what they were. So the famine is so bad that the chef goes out to collect roots and vines, and he just grabs everything he can and throws it in and doesn't know that some of these are poisonous. Once again, you have an expert in making food, and yet... He's not in control. He's still desperate. And so they begin to eat it. And as they poured out some of the stew, the men, of God, the men cried out, Oh, man of God, there's death in the pot. That's a great anti-drug campaign. Okay? <laughs> so I actually made a poster of a death skull. And I put this passage here, man of God, and I put it on my wall in my school just to remind the kids that even the Bible doesn't want you to do drugs. So I'm so against taking things out of context, but this one I just can't resist. So he then said, bring the flour and threw it into the pot. And they said, pour some of it out for the men and they may eat. And there was no harm in the pot. Now he won't do that for your drugs. So don't, okay? So Elijah takes flour, which was a symbol of life. And he throws into this poisonous stew and it purifies it. These people cried on desperation. They were, they were either puking or dying or something, but they were being ripped apart physically from this poison. And they're crying out to God in desperation. And Elisha heals them. But do we cry out to God or do we just complain? They said, man of God, the one who represents Yahweh, there's death, save us. But do we just moan and complain about the corruption and the politics and our corporations and our next-door neighbors? 
or do we say, God, help us? God, help us. God does not reward your complaining. God rewards your cry to him. Now, I'm guilty of complaining, so my family can tell you that. Um, So he rewards their cry. Then the last story here, a man came from Baal Shalashar, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits and 20 loaves of bread, barley, fresh ears of grain, and a sack. And Elisha said, give to the men that they may eat. But the servant said, how can I set this before the hundred men? So he, re- um, he repeated, give them the men, give to the men that they may eat. For thus says Yahweh, they shall eat and have some left over. So he set it before them and they ate and they had some left over according to the word of Yahweh. So this man was willing. At first he says, well, this isn't going to feed a whole bunch of people. But unlike the disciples later, the prophet repeated, give it to them. And he says, okay. He only needed to be told twice. The disciples need to be told multiple times, and they still didn't have the faith. And we're going to see God later with Jesus do this miracle even bigger and better. And this is one of the points that the gospel is going to make, is a lot of what Jesus does is what Yahweh's already done in the Bible, but because it's the Son, he's going to do it bigger and better. But right now what you need to see is that God is rewarding the willingness of the people. Now all these points... That God rewards the emptiness of the people. That God rewards the hospitality of the people. That God rewards the cry of his people. And that God rewards the willingness of the people. All these stories make those points. But all together, he keeps reinforcing these points over and over and over and over again. When you choose to fall into the trap of the world, the complaining, the moaning, the lack of hopelessness, the, 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 the believing it's the end of the world or all chaos is going to overwhelm you, or that you think that this political party or that political party or that lawyer or that doctor or the science or whatever can save you and deliver you, it will always leave you with nothing in the wilderness. But when my people get on their knees and repent of their sins and cry out to me in a faith, they continue to show hospitality to the people around them even though they have nothing. They're willing to give up their emptiness to God even though they have nothing. They're willing to be willing even though they feel like it won't work and they're willing to put their faith in God, God will reward you. And he will then direct the nation and your bosses and your neighbors in the way that he wants. And he will direct you in the past everlasting, life everlasting. And these stories are not just weird stories in the ancient world of how God does miracles then, but not now. Because all of us can see little miracles like this. There wasn't fireworks. This isn't parting the Red Sea. This is just oil coming and when it needs to be there. Food, when it needs to be there. A child, when you need to have it. Family, when you need it. Those are the most powerful miracles. Because no matter how much God parts the Red Sea, what we really truly want is just our needs to be met. And to God to be there with us in community. And God will hear the cry of your heart. And he will respond if you go to him rather than the things of the world. Let's close in prayer. Yahweh, we just praise you for the kind of God that you are. We are not only thankful that you are a God that reveals yourself to us, but we praise you that you are a God that chooses to step into space, time, and history and walk with us and take care of us and provide for us. And that you're a God that is not only powerful enough to take care of our problems, but that you care about us and you're willing enough to take care of us. I pray that we would take these lessons and feel the Holy Spirit 
and that we, including myself, are reminded again that you are the answer and that you are there for us. Allow us to crucify and bury the idols of the world that we have erected in our lives and fall before you and humble and love and devotion and dependence. In Jesus' name, amen.